Hello, and welcome to the Plutarch's Greeks and Romans podcast. I'm Ryan Greenwood, along with my co-host, Chris Finchie. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for the first episode of our bi-weekly podcast, which will be taking a dive into the ancient history of Greece and Rome, seen through the lives of their most famous inhabitants, with the ancient historian and biographer Plutarch as our guide and companion. Plutarch wrote what we would today call biographies about the most famous figures in Greek and Roman history often focusing on revealing incidents and anecdotes that most historians pay little or no attention to, but which can provide fascinating insight into a person's character. And so, as we survey each life in roughly chronological order, which Plutarch himself did not adhere to, we should note, we will not only go on a trip through the major historical events of ancient Greece and Rome, we will also get an entertaining look at the lives and personalities of some of the most famous names in world history, Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, Pompey, Pericles, and many, many more. That's right. And not only does Plutarch give us unique insights into the lives of these famous individuals from both Greek and Roman history, he is uniquely qualified to do so as he himself was a Greek with Roman citizenship. Plutarch lived during the height of the Roman Empire and resided in the Greek city of Chaeronea, site of some famous battles, at least one of which will come up in later episodes. He wrote some ethical works, but his biographies, or lives, are what he is famous for. He started with the lives of the Caesars, but only two of those survive, the lives of Galba and Otho. His truly influential work is The Parallel Lives, a series of paired biographies, each featuring one Greek and one Roman. How's that for a really quick introduction? Pretty good. I think we covered the main points. I'm ready to kick things off. Are you ready, Chris? Let's do it. So where do we start? What do you have in store for us for episode number one? Well, episode one, I wanted to start at the beginning, the life of Theseus. And I think it's perfect that our first two episodes are about the lives of Theseus and Romulus. Some may think, well, it's extremely debatable whether either of these people even existed. Why not start with people we are a lot more certain about? But to me, it is that mythic slash legendary status that makes them the perfect starting point for our podcast. Because for the Greeks and Romans their history began with the heroes. In ancient Greece, it seems like almost every landmark had a legend. Every river, mountain, and cave had been visited by a god or hero in the distant past. Every city or polis had its own hero. And then there was Hercules, who was shared by all of Greece. The hero of Athens was Theseus. Given his association with a city like Athens, that would become so prominent in Greece, it is perhaps unsurprising that Theseus had a great many stories and adventures told about him. Theseus' father, Aegeus, was descended from Erechtheus and the earliest inhabitants of Attica, the region of Athens. His mother, Aethra, was the descendant of the legendary king Pelops. Aegeus, while away from Athens, had a tryst with Aethra, apparently following the instructions of the oracle at Delphi. Theseus was conceived, and before Aegeus left for Athens, he placed a sword and shoes beneath a large stone and told Aethra that when his son was able to lift the stone and claim these tokens, he should be sent to him in Athens. Theseus grew up to be a strong and exceptional youth, and in due course claimed the gifts left by his father, and was told to sail to Aegeus in Athens. Theseus, however, chose to travel the dangerous land route instead. As Plutarch writes, It was at that time very dangerous to go by land on the road to Athens, no part of it being free from robbers and murderers. That age produced a sort of men, in force of hand and swiftness of foot and strength of body, excelling the ordinary rate, and wholly incapable of fatigue. Making use, however, of these gifts of nature to no good or profitable purpose for mankind, but rejoicing and priding themselves in insolence, 
and taking the benefit of their superior strength in the exercise of inhumanity and cruelty, and in seizing, forcing, and committing all manner of outrages upon everything that fell into their hands, all respect for others, all justice, they thought, all equity and humanity, though naturally lauded by common people either out of want of courage to commit injuries or fear to receive them, yet no way concerned those who were strong enough to win for themselves. Wow, so there were basically super strong bandits infesting the countryside? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Plutarch tells us that Hercules had killed some of them, and that Theseus, quote, had long since been secretly fired by the glory of Hercules, held him in the highest estimation, and was never more satisfied than in listening to any that gave an account of him, especially those that had seen him, or had been present at any action or saying of his. So Theseus ignored his mother and his grandfather Pythias's warnings and set out on the land route for Athens, seemingly hoping for some action on the way. Not surprisingly, he got that action. At Epidaurus, he killed Periphetes, who had a club for an arm, and kept the club. He defeated Sinus, the bender of pines, who liked to tie either end of his victims to a pine tree, which he had bent to the ground and then released the pines. Theseus went on to slay the sadistic Procustes, who would tie hapless travelers to his iron bedstead. If they were shorter than the bedstead, he stretched them to make them fit. If they were too tall, he lopped off a bit of them. Uh, Theseus served Procustes with his own signature punishment, the same way Hercules was known to punish his opponents with their own particular type of attack. Wow, best to avoid him, eh? Yeah, uh, dangerous guy. So, when Theseus arrived in Athens, the city was in turmoil. The sorceress Medea had become the wife of Theseus's father, Aegeus. This is the same Medea who was married to Jason with the Golden Fleece? Yeah, that's the same Medea, although there appears to be a timeline issue here, as Theseus was also supposed to be one of the Argonauts who took part in that voyage where Jason met Medea. So I'm not sure exactly how that works, but we won't try to untangle that web of continuity here. In any event, Theseus decides not to reveal his identity to his father right away. But Medea, with her magical arts, recognizes that he's Aegeus' son, feels threatened by him, and convinces Aegeus that the newcomer is trouble and should be invited to a feast and poisoned. At the feast, however, Theseus drew out his sword to cut the meat with, and Aegeus recognized it as the sword he had left beneath the stone, and he rose and knocked the cup of poison to the ground and embraced his son. Medea wisely fled Athens after this. However, there was another trouble afflicting Athens. This was the tribute they were obligated to pay to King Minos of the island of Crete. Plutarch tells us this stemmed from Minos's son being murdered while in Attica. Every nine years, Athens were required to send to Crete seven young men and as many virgins, where they were sent into the maze-like labyrinth to be destroyed by the monstrous Minotaur which was said to be half-man, half-bull. Plutarch, for his part, being a rational historian-slash-biographer, doesn't buy the Minotaur story, and points out that the Cretans, quote, will by no means allow the truth of this, but say that the labyrinth was only an ordinary prison, having no other bad quality but that it secured the prisoners from escaping. Well, Ryan, it, that does seem a bit more plausible. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't disagree. Uh... When it came time to select the next group of seven young men and women to be sent to Crete, there was some indignation that Aegeus should not have to send his own child, and so Theseus came forward and volunteered himself, gaining him great admiration among the Athenians. When the ship left Athens for Crete, it hoisted a black sail, a symbol of the doomed passengers. Theseus told his father Aegeus that should he survive, a white sail would be used when the ship returned. 
Plutarch reveals the variety of different versions of the story of what happened to Theseus in Crete, a couple of which do not seem to involve a minotaur at all. The stories seem to agree on the fact that Theseus cut a dashing figure and impressed Minos' daughter Ariadne, and in the most famous version of the tale, Ariadne gives Theseus a sword to carry into the labyrinth, as well as a clue of thread to use to retrace his way back out after slaying the Minotaur. Theseus manages to defeat the terrifying beast, and find his way back out of the labyrinth using Ariadne's thread. Then he leaves Crete, and, depending on the story, he either leaves Ariadne behind on Crete, or takes her with him only then to abandon her on Naxos on purpose, or on Cyprus by mistake. In any event, when Theseus' ship arrives and approaches the coast of Attica again, Ariadne is not with him. Wow, so basically we can safely conclude that Theseus did not do right by the woman who got him out of the labyrinth in one piece. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair assessment. So Theseus' ship approaches the coast of Attica, but Theseus forgets to hoist the white sail as he had promised his father. Plutarch writes, So great was the joy for the happy success of their voyage, that neither Theseus himself nor the pilot remembered to hang out the sail which should have been the token of their safety to Aegeus, who, in despair at the sight, threw himself headlong from a rock and perished in the sea. So Theseus's return was bittersweet. The Athenians were overjoyed to see Theseus and the other youths returned unharmed from Crete, but mourned the death of Aegeus. Plutarch says that the ship that Theseus and the youths returned in was preserved by the Athenians down to the days of the orator Demetrius Phalerius, who we will cover in a later episode. On this occasion, a new feast was instituted called the Oscophoria, the Feast of the Bows, which Plutarch says was still celebrated in Athens down to his day. Up until this time, the people of Attica were not united, living dispersed around the area. Theseus had the idea of uniting the different tribes politically, and with the force of his personality was able to succeed in this venture. It is also said that Theseus instituted the Isthmian Games, which would become one of the four Panhellenic athletic festivals, along with the Pythian Games at Delphi, the Nemean Games, and of course the Olympic Games, which would see Greeks, or Hellenes as they called themselves, send the best athletes from across the Greek-speaking world to compete for the glory of their cities. Plutarch says that when he instituted the Isthmian Games in honor of Poseidon, Theseus was consciously emulating Hercules, who according to some tales had instituted the Olympic Games in honor of Zeus. Later, Theseus voyaged to the Euxine Sea, today called the Black Sea, abducted the Amazon Antiope, and brought her back to Athens. The stories of Amazon warrior women in Greek legends is now thought to refer to the Scythian nomads who did dominate the grasslands to the north of the Black Sea in ancient times, and did have a great number of warrior women. Oh yeah, of course. I think I've seen this show before. Xena, Warrior Princess? <laughs> great reference. I loved that show when I was a kid in the 90s. Definitely had a crush on Lucy Lawless. Who didn't? Did you know that she was also in the Spartacus TV show? She could be like a symbol of this podcast. She is both Greece and Rome covered. Anyway, I'm getting off topic here. So no, Xena is not an accurate depiction of female Scythian horse archers, but the Greek stories of Amazons do appear to be based on the existence of real female warriors in the Black Sea region. So uh, in any event, Theseus carrying off Antiope prompted the Amazons to attack Athens. Uh, they penetrated the city itself and they fought an epic battle against Theseus and the Athenians. This battle became a very popular subject for ancient sculptors and artists to depict. It seems this war with the Amazons was ended by a treaty, and the Amazons withdrew. As to what happened to Antiope, it's unclear. 
Some sources say she married Theseus, some that she died in the battle. I'm going to assume she left with the other Amazons, as all seem to agree that Theseus eventually marries Phaedra, a daughter of Minos. But wait, Ryan, wasn't uh, Ariande also a daughter of Minos? Yeah, and it certainly seems odd that Phaedra or her family weren't bothered by Theseus having previously abandoned Ariadne, doesn't it? Anyway, that will come a little later as the sources tell us that uh, Theseus would try stealing one more bride before settling down with Phaedra. This other attempt at kidnapping a wife apparently resulted from Theseus's famous bromance with a man named Pirithus. It seems Pirithus had heard about Theseus's ventures and was impressed and so decided to steal Theseus's cattle. This might sound weird, but actually stealing each other's cattle seems to have been a pretty common way for these heroes to enhance their reputations. So Pirithus, uh, in possession of Theseus's cattle, is headed away from Marathon when he hears that Theseus is pursuing him and so turns to face him. Plutarch writes that, As soon as they had viewed one another, each so admired the gracefulness and beauty, and was seized with such a respect for the courage of the other, that they forgot all thoughts of fighting, and Pirithus, first stretching out his hand to Theseus, bade him be judge in this case himself, and promised to submit willingly to any penalty he should impose. So love at first sight. Apparently. The two became inseparable and eventually decided that they should both marry a daughter of Zeus. Theseus chose Helen of Sparta to be his bride, and with Pirithus's help, was able to kidnap her. And so we're talking about the, the famous Helen of Sparta. Yeah, though she was just a child at this point, not yet the beautiful woman for whom the Trojan War would be fought. And Theseus was said to be about 50 at this point, which makes this even more objectionable than his previous attempt to steal a bride. Theseus hid Helen away until she was old enough to marry, but fortunately her brothers, the twins Castor and Pollux, were able to rescue her. Theseus eventually lost favor with the Athenians and retired to Skyros, where he was murdered, but his bones were later returned to Athens, and Theseus's tomb in the center of the city was sacred ground right down to the time that Plutarch was writing in. So Theseus was a hugely important figure in the history of Athens, whether or not the stories told about him were all true. The Athenians believed that he was the one who liberated Athens from the domination of King Minos in Crete, united Attica, and founded festivals like the Panathenaea and the Isthmian Games. His ship was preserved in the city, and Athenians could walk by his tomb and the spot where he battled the Amazons. He was very real to them, and it is almost certain that some of the great Athenians we will encounter in later episodes were inspired by stories of Theseus' exploits. Well, that does it for Theseus. Uh, Next episode, we'll move on from the legendary founder of Athens to Romulus, the founder of that other great city, Rome. Thanks for tuning in to episode one of the Plutarch's Greeks and Romans podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, feel free to head over to our blog at plutarchsgreeksromans.wordpress.com or leave us a review on whichever podcast service you're using. Hope to see you for episode two. Thanks.